the summer, uh, a student uh, named Lissy is staying uh, with my wife and me in our home. In the mornings, uh, the three of us uh, sit together in our living room. Uh, we drink coffee, we eat breakfast, and we read our Bibles uh, quietly together. And this summer, I've been reading through the Psalms. Uh, as it turns out, we're actually doing a sermon series on the Psalms back at our home church at, at Redeemer Burlington. And one morning, uh, Lissy brought Psalm 19 uh, to my attention. In the middle of this psalm, you have this section uh, that describes the law of God in the most positive way possible. The psalmist says there that the rules of the Lord are more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. And Lissy and I got to talking about that. You see, when she thinks about the law, and, and often when I think about the law, uh, we don't think of it in that way. You know, I don't know what happens to you when I say the word law, but often for me, when, when that word hits my ears, I think of something that shows me my guilt and my shame. I think of something that condemns me, that makes me really uncomfortable. I don't think of it as desirable than gold or, or sweeter than honey. Um, maybe you've had a similar experience. And if so, then the question is raised, well, what's, what's going on here in the middle of the psalm? How do we understand it? And frankly, how do we understand the psalm as a whole? Well, Lissy and I had uh, the beginnings of a, of a great conversation that day, one that was so good that I didn't want to keep it contained uh, to our living room only. Okay, so what I want to do today is I want to open up Psalm 19 before you. You know, I want to, uh, to look at it uh, together, and I, I want to share with you what I think it has to say. As we do so, as we look at Psalm 19 uh, together, King David, this, the psalmist who lived nearly 3,000 years ago, wants to focus our attention on a few things. Okay, he wants us to see the hands of God. He wants us to see the heart of God. He wants to see our problem, and then he wants to direct us to our praise. Okay, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the, the hands, the heart of God. We're going to see our problem and the object of our praise. Well, let's begin here uh, in verse 1 and see how the heavens declare the glory of God, how they show us the work of his hands. I'll read verse 1 again. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Back in uh, 2004, uh, I was a recent college graduate uh, from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, and after my graduation, I spent some time backpacking in South and, and Southeast Asia. Uh, that October, I was in uh, the country of Nepal, and I spent about two weeks going to the base camp uh, of Mount Everest. Well, one night during this trek, um, I was staying in a, a little small mountain village called uh, Tengboche uh, in this little hut, and I woke up and I had to go to the bathroom. And there weren't any bathrooms inside of this little hut. They, they had outhouses in the back. So I woke up, I, I got dressed, and I stepped outside. Well, as soon as I got outside, I, I took a few steps forward, and then I looked up at the sky above me, and as soon as I did, I got dizzy and I fell to the ground. You know what happened? Well, when I looked up at the sky that night, I saw so many stars, more stars than I had ever seen in my life. And I got vertigo. I got this dizzy feeling. It, it, it sort of was like a tunnel vision. The sky seemed to be shifting and elongating, and it felt like the earth was giving way beneath my feet, and I collapsed. You know, seeing the stars that night, seeing the heavens, as it were, right 
literally knocked me to the ground, and it almost knocked the wind out of me. Well, if you look at verse 1, this is precisely the kind of thing that David is talking about. David is talking about the heavens. He's talking about the countless numbers of stars in the sky, and he's saying that they declare the glory of God. Okay, the heavens declare the glory of God. The glory of God, well, what is that, and what does that mean? You know, in Hebrew, the word glory means weightiness. Uh, it means heaviness. Often when I think about it, I think of like a bowling ball. I, I think of this weighty, heavy object, and I imagine coming into contact with it. You know, maybe somebody throws it at me, and I try and catch it, and it hits me in the stomach, and I keel over, and I'm sort of left gasping for air. Coming into contact with this glorious thing, this weighty, heavy thing, often can leave you on the ground gasping for air. That's kind of what we're getting at, right? In verse 1, David says that the heavens declare the glory of God. That is to say, the heavens reveal God's weightiness, his heaviness, right? His strength and power and might. In effect, David is saying, you, pay attention, right? Look up at the sky. Whoever made this is glorious, right? Whoever made this is powerful. He's mighty. The heavens declare the glory of God. Then what does he say? Does he say, look down? No, he says, keep looking up, okay? Because the sky above proclaims his handiwork as well. God gets introduced to us in the psalm, first of all, as someone who is glorious, as someone who is mighty. But then he gets introduced to us as an artist. David says to us, look up at the sky. Look at the sky filled with sun and moon and billions upon billions of stars. Behold the handiwork of God. Behold the work of God's hands. It's amazing. It's, it's beautiful. The sheer size and, and magnificence and beauty of this universe okay, reveals that God is certainly powerful, but it also reveals that he is endowed with great creativity and skill. Okay, he's a master artist. Finally, God is introduced to us as, as like an architect or as an engineer. Look at verses 4 through 6. God is described there as, as someone who has built a tent for the sun. And not only has he built a tent for the sun, but he set the sun on a certain course or circuit. All that's to say is that there is intentionality and there's order and there's design built into God's creation. Okay, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And if you are paying attention to the sky, you cannot deny that this mighty artist engineer of a God exists, that he's out there. Look at what David says in verses 2 through 4. He says that day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and the words to the end of the world. What David is saying is that there is this mighty artist, engineer of a God out there, and this revelation is made to everybody. Anybody who pays attention to the sky can tell that this mighty artist, engineer of a God exists, that he is out there. 
You don't need to speak a certain language to be able to comprehend this. Okay, you don't need to know German or French or English or Chinese in order to grasp what the heavens have to say. Okay, this revelation is universal. It transcends human speech. Okay, the Apostle Paul had something very similar to say in his letter to the Romans. In his letter to the Romans, he writes, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. He goes on to say that there really is no excuse for our atheism. Okay? Nobody can say that God hasn't revealed himself to me. Because he has, and he continues to do and he continues to do so every single day in the day and night sky. Every race, okay, every tribe, every culture, every creed, every gender, northerner, southerner, Republican, Democrat, gay or straight, Muslim, Jew, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, Christian, everybody, absolutely everybody receives this revelation. Okay, you cannot escape it. I can't escape it either. Okay, evidence for the existence and the power and the glory of God is all around us and it's right there above us. Okay? In sum, the sky above reveals that there is this mighty artist engineer of a God out there and this revelation is made to everybody. Okay. Now the heavens declare the glory of God. Okay? But the knowledge that we gain from it, okay, and the knowledge that we gain from nature has its limits. Okay? It can only take us so far. As we look up at the sky and as we look out upon uh, this, this world around us, okay, we can say that there is a God and, and he is powerful and he is artistic and He's intentional and so on. But who is this mighty God? Who is this mighty artist engineer? You know, does he have a name? So what is it? You know, what, what is this God like? What does he love? You know, what does he hate? You know, you and I can see the works of his hands, but is it possible for us to, to see and know him? Is it possible for us to see and and know his heart. Okay? Think of it this way. You and your family, you just won a, a free trip to Paris, France. You get to go to, you get to, go to Paris. That's awesome, right? Um, and while you're there, you get to go to the, the famous art museum, the Louvre. Okay? And, and when you're there, you wait there in line for an hour, but finally, after an hour-long wait, there she is. Right? The Mona Lisa. Uh, da Vinci's masterpiece. Now, you've waited in line for an hour to see her, so you're not going you know, anywhere anytime soon. You're going to spend some time, and you're actually going to look at this painting. Uh, and as you look at this painting, as you look at the Mona Lisa, you're, be you're able to begin to formulate in your mind a few things about the artist. Okay? First of all, and probably most obviously, you're able to deduce uh, there was an artist. Okay? The Mona Lisa didn't paint herself. Okay? But secondly, as you study sort of the composition, and as you pay attention uh, to the brushstrokes and so on, uh, you're able to tell that whoever painted this was a genius who had power in his paintbrush, who was endowed, obviously, with great talent and skill. 
Now, you've never met the man. You don't know Leonardo da Vinci personally, but just by looking at this painting, you're able to say a few things about it. You're able to say a few things about Leonardo da Vinci just by looking at the work of his hands. Nevertheless, you run out of things to say pretty quickly. Why? Well, because you don't actually know Leonardo da Vinci. Okay, you've never met the guy. You don't know what he's like. You don't uh, know what he loves or he hates. You don't know what makes him happy or sad. And you don't know this because you haven't talked to him. But what if you could? You know, what if Leonardo da Vinci was alive and, and you were able to sit down and, and, and have a conversation with him and, and talk to him? Well, if you're able to do that, well, then you could ask him some of these questions and he'd be able to give you some answers and he'd be able to say, hey, this is who I am, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, you know, this is what I think about you, this is what I think about other people. And then over time, you'd be able to say, yeah, yeah, I know that guy, not because I saw some painting on a wall, but because I actually talked to him, because I actually know what he's like. We, we had a conversation. He opened up the doors of his heart. Well, that's what brings us to verse 7. Okay, verses 7 through 11. In verses 7 through 11, our, our psalmist, King David, reflects on the giving of the law, which is akin to having this conversation with an artist. You see, God didn't just create us, but God has also spoken to us. He's given us his law. We often think of the law as a, as a bunch of rules, but it's more than that. When God gave us this law, he told us who he is. He told us uh, what he is like, and he's told us who we are and what we're supposed to be like. And he told us what he loves and what he hates. And he says, I want you to love and hate these things as well. And in a way, he entered into conversation with us. And it's through this conversation, it's through this giving of the law, that we begin to know who God really is and what he really is like. In other words, the heavens declare the work of God's hands, but the law is that thing that opens up the door to God's heart. Look at how David makes this shift in verse 7. Okay, he says here that the law of the Lord is perfect. I'm just going to stop there for a second. Okay, in verse 7, David doesn't say the law of God, but he says that the law of the Lord is perfect. Literally, the law of the Lord is the law of Yahweh. It's the law of Jehovah. And this is a significant detail. Okay, in verse 1, David says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and he uses there in verse 1 this generic term for God, that it's the Hebrew ale. But here, in verse 7, David uses God's personal name. He says, the law of Yahweh, okay? The law of Jehovah is perfect. In other words, thanks to the law, we have greater intimacy, okay, with this mighty artist engineer of a God. Okay, that's a, that's a kind of a neat detail right there in verse 7. Well, this, this name Yahweh here in verse 7 is significant for another reason. When God first gives us this name, he does so right before he redeems his people from slavery in Egypt. Listen to what he says to Moses in, in Exodus chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, I'll, I'll just read it to you. Yahweh says, the Lord, right? He says, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I am Yahweh. 
I'm Jehovah. I'm the Lord. The point here is this. The God who made us and the world around us, this mighty artist of an engineer, he's not aloof and he's not distant. He's not like this guy who like, created the world like a clock, just winding it up and then putting it on a shelf and saying, that's that, I've, you know, I'm done with that. Okay? He's very close and he's concerned about us and he's concerned about this world. He's the creator, but he is the redeemer of humanity as well. When he sees the world sort of sunk in sin and, and you know, lost in the mire, he doesn't forsake us. He cares about it. He hears our cries, and then he does something about it. He promises to rescue us, and he makes good on his promises. And he says, that's who I am. I'm Yahweh. I'm your creator, but I'm your redeemer as well, and you need to know that about me. I'm both of those things. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God, that there is this mighty artist of an engineer of a God out there, but this God has entered into conversation with us as creatures. He has told us his name. He has told us that he is the creator, but he has said that he's the redeemer of us as well, that he cares for us, that he hears our cries, and that he's going to come and save us. You know, we don't know this from just looking out at the stars in the sky. We don't know this just from looking at nature. You, you can't do that. It's impossible to tell that. But you can know that if God tells you, and that's what he's done. He's entered into conversation with us. He's given us his law. Because of it, we can know this about him. Okay, well, what else has God said? In this conversation with the artist, as it were, okay, God says, this is who I am, this is what I'm like. He says, also, this is what I love, and, and this is what I hate. And this is probably what we often think about when we think about the law. We would say, these are the do's and the don'ts, right? These are the likes and the dislikes of God. These are the things that he loves and he, he, and he hates. I want you to see that this is a reflection of God's heart. This is an important part. We understand more of the character of God when he says, I love this and I don't like that. But what does God love and, and, and what does God hate? Well, probably the easiest way to talk about that is to go back to what we, we read earlier, Matthew 22, where Jesus summarized the law for us. And he said, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And he said, a second like it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. These two commandments summarize the loves and the hates of God. Well, God says, first of all, you shall love God. He said that God loves God. It's kind of a funny thing to say, but it kind of makes sense when you remember that God has been and always will be Father, Son, and Spirit. For all eternity, God the Father has loved God the Son. For all eternity, God the Son has loved God the Father, and the Holy Spirit has shared in their love. And because of this, God, who's made us in his image, who wants us to be like him, too, says, you shall love the Lord your God, too. We love each other. We want you to love us, too. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God also loves us. He loves people who are made in his image. God has made us in his image, which is this incredibly high honor. It's an incredibly high privilege. But he calls us other things as well. He calls us his children. He calls us his treasured possession. He tells us that he loves us. 
You know, moms and dads and grandparents in the room, you know what it's like to have affection for your children and your grandchildren. Well, God loves us like that, only infinitely greater. Okay? He really loves us. And he loves you and you and you and you back there, and he loves me too. And it's because of that that he doesn't want us to lie and cheat and steal and murder and commit adultery because when we do those things, we hurt people who are made in his image. We hurt people whom God has made and whom God loves. Okay, we could spend a lot more talking about this, right? But do you understand or do you begin to see, right, how the law is this reflection of God's heart, that he loves Father, Son, and Spirit love each other. They love us, and because of that, he tells us certain things to do. This is how you can love us. This is how you can love one another. Really, the law originates in the love of God. Okay? Well, because God has told us these things, because God has spoken directly to us, okay, we can know him in a way that the heavens simply wouldn't afford us. We know God in a greater way now because he has spoken to us. And that's why David bursts with praise for the law, here in verses 7 through 11. He, he, that's why he's filled with joy, because this God who would maybe otherwise stand far off and aloof, a God that we would only be able to guess about, now we can say a whole lot about him. And it turns out that this God loves us too. It's amazing. It's a really, really good thing. And that's why he says here that the law of the Lord is perfect. It's reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The, work, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. They are sweeter than honey. By them we are warned, and the keeping of them there is great reward. Well, all this is true, right? And the law really is this, it's a good and beautiful thing. But we, we bump up against this sort of original question. If, if it's so good, if it's so beautiful, then why do we have such an averse reaction to it? Why is it hard for us to maybe think about it or talk about it in those ways? Look at what happens in verses 12 through 13. So far we've said, we've, we've talked about, right, the, uh, the hands of God, the, the, the work of his hands, how the heavens declare the glory of God. We've talked about the law and how it sort of opens up the heart of God. We're now coming to this third part where we think about our problem. Does the law present us uh, with a problem? Excuse me, one second. And I'd say, yes, it does. Uh, in verses 12 uh, through 13, um, well, let me just read them here for you. David goes from saying all this great stuff about the law, and then he sort of shifts gears here. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent, or declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Uh, let them uh, not have dominion over me. This is definitely an interesting direction for the psalm to turn. Okay, the, the psalm does shift gears here. David has spent the first 11 verses talking about God and the knowledge of God that we can get from, from nature as well as from his law. But now all of a sudden he starts praying. You know, in verse 12, David starts praying. And if you pay attention to the prayer, what he's asking for is mercy uh, and for help 
Okay? What's going on? You know, why does David do that? After this lengthy praise about the law that he all of a sudden turns to this prayer where he's saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Declare me innocent from my hidden faults and, and help me, keep me, protect me from presumptuous sins. Here's what I think is going on. Okay? We know from the law who God is, what he's like, what he loves, and what he hates. And now we also know that we're supposed to love him and, and to love our neighbor. We're to love the things that he loves and to, to hate the things that he hates. And at the same time, right, now that we know this, we're condemned when we don't do it. Right? If we don't do these things, all of a sudden we're found to be in the wrong. Each and every day, in ways great and small, each of us fails to do what God has told us we ought to do, to love the things that he loves, to love him, right? to love one another, to love this world that he's given to our care. Okay. We all fail to do this. None of us is righteous, the Bible says, not one. Okay? In the words of the prophet Isaiah, we've all become like one who's unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And in the Bible, when it says that no one is righteous, it means no one. It means not even David. When the Bible it says all of us have become like one who's unclean, all of us means all of us, right? David as well. And David knows this. David knows, after he said all this great stuff about the law, he, he knows that there is a problem, right? He knows that there's this really good thing, this, this really great thing called the law, right, that opens up the heart of God, that shows us the purity of his heart, and at the same time, this, this very good thing shows us the problems with our own. Okay, David understood this. If you want proof, go to Psalm 51. You know, go to Psalm 32. Look here, okay, in Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13. The law is this really, really good thing, but often it feels like a bad thing, and the reason it feels like a bad thing is because it it shows us our sin. You know, it's like an x-ray. It's like an x-ray that exposes brokenness inside of our body. Maybe like a broken bone. In this case, a broken heart. You know, it's like a light that shines into a darkness and says, oh, there's a lot of good here, but look, there's a lot of messed up and brokenness here too. The law then, which shows us the heart of God, also shows us the problems with our own. Okay, the law shows us that we are sick, okay, and that we need a doctor. The law shows us that we're in bondage to our sin, and we really need a Savior. Okay, we need a Redeemer. We do need someone who's going to set us free from our sins. We need someone who's going to win our forgiveness. We need someone who's going to heal us of this disease called sin. And in that respect, the law really pushes us and drives us to the arms of a Savior. That's exactly how this psalm ends. Look at verse 14 with me, and look at how it ends. David ends the psalm by addressing his God and our God. He says, O Lord, he says, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. And he addresses God as both his rock and his redeemer. 
David knows this really good law, okay, which shows us the purity of God's heart, also shows him the problems with his own. And he knows that he has a problem. He knows that he is a sinner. But he doesn't end this psalm on a note of despair. Okay? He ends this note with almost confident praise. He's addressing God, calling him my rock and my redeemer. This rock is not a rock that is going to crush him. Okay? It's a rock that he can stand upon. It's a rock that is going to support him. This is the God who's going to redeem him. Who just like he did in Exodus, setting the people free from their oppressors, is going to set him free from his enemies as well. And what's our greatest enemy? It's sin. It's Satan. It's death. Yahweh is going to set us free from these things. This is the God who said to Moses, I'm Yahweh. I'm going to bring you out of from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Okay, this is the God who taught his people to sing in Psalm 130, O Israel, hope in the Lord, hope in Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the God who sent his Son into the world to save sinners, like you, like me, like David. Okay? He sent his son into this world who was born under the law, but who fulfilled the law so that we could be robed in God's righteousness. Okay? David probably, when he sat down and he wrote this, he probably didn't understand exactly how this was all going to work out. He probably couldn't tell that God was going to, to take on flesh and was going to live this life of perfection for us and then die on a cross. Who could have imagined? Who could have dreamed, but he did know that Yahweh was going to do something remarkable. He did know that Yahweh was his creator and his redeemer as well, and that this law, that this brilliant thing that shows us the heart of God that condemns him is also going to drive him into the arms of the one who's going to save him. You know, to wrap this all up, in this psalm, David is calling our attention to the heavens. And he's saying that they declare the glory of God. They testify that there is this mighty artist of an engineer of a God out there. He exists. Okay? We cannot deny it. Okay? But thanks to his law, thanks to this conversation that we have with this artist, as it were, we can know him personally and intimately. We know his name. We know him not just as our maker, but we also know him as our redeemer. He has told us who he is and what he is like. He has told us what he loves and what he hates. And there's so much beauty in that kind of knowledge that we can know. Think about it. The maker of the heavens and the earth with that kind of intimacy. It's remarkable. Well, this thing that is so beautiful can often feel bad because it shows us our sin. But it also shows us the Lord. It shows us Jesus. It shows us that we have a rock and our redeemer. And David gets this. And his heart sings. And congregation, I long so badly for you that you get it too and that your heart will sing as well. In a moment, we'll have it. We, we can do just that. But before we do, let's pray.